How's it going, everyone? Today, we are fortunate to have Rick Allen Ross, who is a cult specialist, deprogrammer, founder of the Cult Education Institute, an author. And the reason why I wanted to have someone like Rick on the show is because I've grown fascinated with cults, the history of them, why people joined them, especially in the last year or so, it felt like the movement of Q or whatever that is kind of blew up. And uh, Rick, it's uh, great to have you on here. Thanks, John. Now, how have you been this whole year? Oh, it's been a rough year. I mean, I've been I've been busy with work, and it's been a different kind of existence. I have testified in court cases via Zoom, and uh, I've done interviews on Zoom, Skype, different links online, and uh, not so much traveling. I mean, I usually would travel multiple times during a month, and now I'm just pretty much locked in place, like so many people, uh, waiting for my shot. I love it. And uh, just joining us now is Dean Bledel, the Dean Bledel Network. Um, that he is the reason why I've kind of blown the popularity up in popularity for Spirit Talk. Uh, probably the biggest, if not one of the biggest uh, podcast networks in all of Canada. So, Dean, it's great to have you on here. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we uh, we have some fun and we talk about a bunch of stuff, everything from uh, QAnon to cults to uh, personal protection and uh, how to be better people. So it's a pleasure to meet you, uh, Rick. Thanks for doing this. And and uh, thanks for having me on, John. Appreciate it. No, awesome. And uh, I kind of told everyone before why you and I went on your podcast earlier. We kind of did a deep dive, very fascinating, with another expert in uh, cults uh, about the QAnon movement and how it just, I like, we still don't, we have the same questions, maybe come from different backgrounds, but we don't know why or how or what the next move is. And so, again, Rick, thank you for uh, jumping on here. Now, you mentioned being an expert through Zoom for court cases. Is that, do you think that'll be the new thing now, especially if they want your expertise, but you can't get there? Uh, now you're allowed to zoom into these court cases. Do you think that's be a new normal for you? Uh, well, it is for now. I mean, uh, there I, I testify as a, a court expert in cases involving child custody, personal injury. I've testified at criminal trials, and I've also worked with teams uh, for mitigation for defendants who were unduly influenced, and they're looking to mitigate their sentencing. So I've uh, I've testified in federal court, state court. Uh, most notably, I was a fact witness at the trial of Keith Raniere, the leader of Nexium, the sex cult that uh, branded people. Wow. Okay, so now that that's out of the bag, I, when I and you you've dealt with all these different cults, but for that cult, that's that's probably the reason why I kind of I started questioning what QAnon is because I realized it got so much publicity. On mainstream news, I remember seeing it at or stories about TMZ or Fox News, CNN. I'm like, kind of, what is this? And for that to be so prevalent, it actually attracts athletes and celebrities to the cult. How does that even? How does he even get that far? Oh, you're talking about Keith Raniere, right? How does? All right. Well, well, Keith Raniere was a uh, he was a, he ran a seminar selling uh, company. And what they did was they sold what he called executive success programs, which was a series of courses. It could last a week. It could last two weeks 
where you would be in a training in training seminars. And there were many celebrities that were attracted to this, uh, including Allison Mack, the one of the stars of Smallville, uh, and also two heiresses, uh, and this was key, to the Seagram's liquor fortune. Saren, Saren Claire yeah. Bronfman, yeah, Edgar Bronfman Sr., uh, his daughters. Canadian Tess, uh, I believe. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and and Edgar Bronfman was very concerned about them. At one point, he came out publicly and said, even though I did the courses, I think this is a cult. And for that, Keith Raniere cut him off from his daughters in large part for years. Uh, I think he died very sad about that. Uh, Claire Bronfman right now is serving a six and a half year sentence in prison. And they gave Keith Raniere over a hundred million dollars over a period of years, including, uh, you know, including things like a large donation to make sure that the Dalai Lama of Tibet would speak at one of their events in Albany. The Dalai Lama was going to back out, and then reportedly Claire Bronfman and her sister came up with two million, and uh, he decided never, never mind, I'll come. I know it's it's supposed to be a bad group, but uh, for two million, I'll show up. Yeah. So he came. He didn't have a very good response, but Keith Raniere was a master manipulator. Now he's in a federal prison, serving a sentence of one hundred and twenty years. Hmm. Um, Rick, you know I, I've got fifteen thousand questions to ask you from you know the Cult Education Institute. What is it? What do you do? Uh, but we're on this, and I and I want to continue on this with Keith Ranieri because you know as it as it translates into QAnon, which is you know the most recent widely available example of what really a cult is all about, how it works. You know, Keith Ranieri was uh, a manipulative individual, whereas QAnon. Um, doesn't seem to have anybody at the helm. You know, we, we know who Jim Watkins and Ron Watkins are. Uh, we know their history. We know a little bit about where they might be and where they frequent. But, you know, they've largely, you know, kind of feign like they're not part of it. They're, they're, it, they're not they're not figureheads. They're not the statesmen of the organization, which largely I think, uh, you know, cults usually have by design, which is what makes QAnon so weird to me. Yeah, I think that QAnon, in my opinion, is a destructive cult. But let's look at the differences between QAnon and a, and a typical destructive cult. A typical destructive cult, the one most salient single feature about it is the personality-driven nature of it. Mm -hmm. So you have a totalitarian leader who has no meaningful accountability to anybody, a self-proclaimed prophet, guru, whatever. And that person... Uh, it becomes an object of worship, is the defining element and driving force of the group. Whatever they say is right is right. Whatever they say is wrong is wrong. And basically, uh, the people depend on that leader to think for them. And the, the second feature of a destructive cult is the control of information in an indoctrination process that culminates in undue influence. So the leader uses coercive persuasion techniques such as isolation, cutting people off from their families, their old friends, embedding them in a kind of bubble world where it's an echo chamber for the leader's dictates and ideas. And then finally, once that leader gets that uh, handle on his people through, through coercive persuasion and very often deception in the recruitment process, then he or she starts in 
exploiting the people, doing harm, mm -hmm. which de which defines it as a destructive cult. So I think QAnon fits number two and fits number three. But where we've got a problem is number one, which is that we don't really know who Q is, who 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 does the Q drops. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we've heard some people say it's more than one person. We've had some people say it's 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 like people running a scam to humiliate the public. Uh, we, we've had all kinds of speculation, but nothing absolutely definitive. So unlike the typical destructive cult, we have an enigmatic, uh, uh, vague kind of cult leader that we cannot identify. And typically the cult leader is very narcissistic, a megalomaniac who wants to be identified and wants to be the center of attention and QAnon is not like that. Was was Donald Trump that for them by proxy? No, um, no, no, no. You know, I, I'm going to agree with Michael Langoni, the executive director of of the uh, Cultic uh, Studies uh, International Organization, which basically he said, you know, if you don't like Donald Trump, okay, but it's over the top to call MAGA a cult or Donald Trump a cult leader. Who, who did he brainwash? What book did he consult? And what was the thought reform program that he implemented to control people? And last time I checked, he was impeached twice. He's accountable. He just got fired in the last election cycle. So what we're dealing with is not a cult leader and not a cult but rather uh, a movement of people, the MAGA group, the MAGA movement, that really felt that Donald Trump was talking their talk uh, very uh, much their vessel, that they felt was a spokesperson for the feelings that they had for a very long time before he even came on the scene. And mm -hmm. I, would, I would point out also that the QAnon movement, you need to understand it in, I think, three parts. One part would be people who have longstanding uh, sentiments regarding conspiracy theories. Uh, they, they may be anti-Semitic. They may have racist beliefs, uh, deeply held religious beliefs that, that dovetail with certain things that are taught by QAnon. And so these people really were uh, QAnon recruits waiting to join, more or less. It was very easy for them to get on the QAnon train. And then there's another group of people that, quite frankly, I think are psychologically and emotionally unstable. They get online. They see something wild and crazy that, for them, uh, explains some of their paranoid delusions about the world. I, I, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't get an email from somebody that says, I'm being stalked by a cult. I need the police, help me. They're bugging my phone, they're bugging my internet connection. And re in reality, they're, they're paranoid and, and quite often schizophrenic and delusional. So I think there's That's that. That's when it really sucks being one of the world's foremost experts on cults is those phone calls. <laughs> yeah, you, you better believe it because I always, I always tell them, I say, look, this is a law enforcement matter. Yeah. You need to call the police. You need to call the FBI. Excuse, excuse the uh, construction crew in the background. Uh, and and I think it's the, cool. Yeah. Well, there you go. They're sawn away. Good. Uh, but it, it's not it's not cult members that are out to get me. Mm -hmm. So so anyway, QAnon people are divided up into these three categories: people that were predisposed to accept such conspiracy theories 
through long-held sentiments, uh, religious beliefs, uh, uh, attitudes about whoops, attitudes about race. Heads up there, Rick. I just want to say you might be next. I, I, I it's getting a lot closer. It's whatever yeah. that sound is. It's approaching. It's getting louder and closer, and it, it's in my ears. And so are you. So I just hope you're okay. That's all I care about uh, right now. Uh, no, I'm okay. They're not going to saw right. me up yet. And but there is one significant group that I think we need to take into account. Oh, what is that? Now, now, now we have an alarm. Uh, Did someone alarm cut something off. they shouldn't have over I, there? Uh, I don't know. That 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 would be a smoke detector. So I hope that the place is not on fire. So so anyway, the third group of people that are involved are are people that are are really deceived. These are people that are typical of, of cults in general mm -hmm. that were recruited through a deceptive recruitment process and then indoctrinated through coercive persuasion and various influence techniques to where they aren't thinking critically or independently, and they're dependent upon the next QAnon drop to determine what is reality and what is not. Mm -hmm. And those, those people can be deprogrammed. Those are people that I can help through interventions, which I do. Uh, but the other two categories, the people with psychological and emotional problems, you can't deprogram that the people with long-held and fervent beliefs and sentiments that dovetail with QAnon, you can't deprogram that either. So I think we need to make those distinctions when we're looking at QAnon. Now, Dean and I have talked about uh, misinformation and how stuff gets spread. But for you, have you found that the digital age and social media has made this a lot easier for these kind of theories and crazy cults to kind of spread like wildfire through the masses? Absolutely. I mean, uh, what we find now is that these groups are prolific, that they're all online, that they all make use of social media platforms. They actually use YouTube to indoctrinate people in the group, and they're constantly watching one YouTube uh, installment after another for various groups in order to learn uh, what the group believes and how they should uh, interpret things. So I think that uh, people are following cult leaders on, on Twitter, they're, they're following them on Instagram, they're on Facebook, they're using YouTube, and they're using PayPal to extract money from people. And I, I get calls from families constantly that my loved one was recruited in, in my own home. Uh, they were on an electronic device in another room. Uh, mm -hmm. They worked from home. They watched videos uh, that the group had on YouTube at home. And everything happened remotely. And there are people that are in groups that are, exist online. And they basically never have physical contact with the cult leader and, and other members. And they just simply follow online. And that's largely what QAnon does. So what in my estimation, because, you know, I have to understand things in streams. I need to understand what is and what isn't, you know, from a factual basis. Um, 
from a factual basis, because I love to call organized religion, all of it a cult. I, it's just one, because I'm not an organized religion guy. Uh, I'm agnostic. So I'm spiritually agnostic. I'd like to think I'm, I, I think about different things. I'm into stoicism and the meditations and philosophy. So uh, I, I run my life very differently today than I used to. And I was in a born again Christian church when I was a younger kid and grew up in that and was baptized Sunday school outreach missions. My brother was a missionary. My parents are still born again. Love them. They're very dialed back as far as evangelicals go. I don't believe in any of it anymore. But I like to throw out these these like um, uh, insults, really, that that all man made religion is a cult. And you know, it's easy. Then we throw that QAnon's a cult, and then we say, um, you know, Nixium's a cult, which it absolutely is a cult. But what is it by definition? What has to exist for us to be? entitled to call a cult a cult okay well let's look at that and let's look at it and and take it apart from an evangelical perspective and mainstream religion perspective etc uh i would say uh that the difference between a cult and mainstream religious groups is typically let's take protestants churches for an example would be democratic governance you have an elected board, board members are serving a fixed term. They can hire and fire the pastor, determine the salary of the pastor. There's a contract with a pastor with probably an ethics clause, where if the pastor violates that clause, he can be terminated or she. Uh, and then there may be a denominational umbrella over the individual churches that hold them accountable to denominational standards. Like right. if you're Alliance, a Protestant, Baptist, Right, um, right. Yeah, that kind of stuff. You you can't pre preach that Jesus came from outer space and that he's part of a Star Trek away team. And if you do that, you probably are not going to be part of the Southern Baptist Convention, etc. <laughs> That'd be a and great so, movie, Yeah, you know, you can't say go. Jesus, you know, how, how do they do that with a V, you know? They go, hey, Jesus, uh, I'm, I'm part of the away team. Beam me yeah, up, yeah. Scotty. You know, Scotty was a <laughs> disciple of Jesus. If, if you if you start saying stuff like that, yeah, uh, the denominational headquarters is going to say, "Hey, that guy is out. He's not uh, preaching what we all have voted on and agreed on as our doctrinal position through our convention." So he's out. So you have all these layers of accountability. You also have educational requirements for pastors. They typically have. Uh, a bachelor's degree, an advanced degree, a master's in divinity. They've gone through a seminary where there have been checks and, and balances, and they've been scrutinized for their, uh, you know, their, their, their scholarliness, their, their emotional stability to some extent. Mm -hmm. So you have all that. Uh, additionally, in a Baptist church, let's say you're a Southern Baptist church, let's give Billy Graham as an example. Billy Graham, when he was out doing crusades, did not say, look, I alone can save you. If you are not with the Billy Graham crusade or with a Southern Baptist church, because I'm Southern Baptist, you're going to hell on a freight train. OK, either you're with me or you're against me. Okay. No, no. Billy Graham, what Billy Graham would say is, look, I'm a Christian. The defining element is not me. The defining element is Jesus. And therefore, if you're a Lutheran, an, evan a, 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 an evangelical free church member, disciples of Christ, even Roman Catholic, for crying out loud, you're saved if you believe in Jesus and you're a Christian. 
So there wasn't this exclusivity and this we, they mentality that you have in a destructive cult. Because in a destructive cult, let's take it if it's a church, because cults come in many shapes and sizes with many facades. So some are selling seminars, some are selling uh some form of exercise or meditation, some are wellness, cool. very much in the wellness industry. We talked to a guy from the yeah. Conspirituality podcast a couple of weeks ago. Great guy. His name's Matthew Remsky. He's, uh, he's, a, he's a cult researcher because he was actually involved in two of them, regrets it terribly, and now he just wants to understand it all. Um, but that was present, you know, like that, you know, listening to um, you talk about the differences between those, the cult and a religion. Religion seems to be more democratic. Uh, than the cult, you know, it, it, well, there's there's some democracy, some education, and it's not about the one individual. And well, and and Dean, look, that makes for safeguards. That yeah. makes for safety. So, I mean, if you join an independent standalone church, it may be a perfectly fine church, but the more uh, layers of accountability there are, the safer you are as a practical consideration. Now, if someone is coming in the guise of a Christian pastor, like Jim Jones did, who was the head of Jonestown, People's Diana. Temple, which was a cult, terrible mass suicide in 1978, uh, he had no accountability. He believed that his group and his group alone was right. Everyone else was wrong. Everyone else was less. And when you have that kind of an authoritarian leader who is telling you that, look, that Christian church down the street, if you decide to go there, you're going to hell. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to stay with me under my leadership. And it's me that defines this group and me that makes this group the right group. When you hear that kind of talk, that kind of authoritarianism, where, and that kind of exclusivity, even if it's pretending to be Christian, mm -hmm. it's a, it is a destructive cult. So what we're looking at is not what the group believes, uh, but rather how the group behaves. And what is the structure of the group? And how is the, the leadership accountable to the membership? Are they? Are they really? Are they financially, for example, are they financially transparent? Do you know where your money goes when you give it to the organization? Do they give you an annual financial statement and budget as most churches in America do? Or do they tell you, you know, basically, what's the matter with you? Don't you trust us? Uh, do they answer your questions with questions? Warning. You know, that could be a real red flag. So, mm -hmm. so there are distinct characteristics that destructive cults possess, and it's structural and it's behavioral, and we can see it. And we can look at it objectively and discern whether or not it is a destructive cult. Also noted, you just described the IRS to some extent. Anyway. <laughs> I, I don't know. About that. <laughs> now, if you can step back, Rick, how did you kind of get into this career path? Oh, boy. A very... I mean, was there like an event or like a specific type of thing that happened where you're like, I need to do, I need to, I need to understand the cults. I need to be the expert in this field. Uh, it was very uh, serendipitous. I mean, what happened was my grandmother uh, lived in a Jewish nursing home. And I was raised Jewish, and she was 82 at the time. And I went to go have lunch with her, and she was very, uh, as we say in Yiddish, for klemt. 
She was very upset. And I looked at her and I said, Bubby, which is Yiddish for grandma. I said, Bubby, you know, what's happening? And she said, uh, this woman came and she accosted me. She confronted me. And she told me that if I didn't believe according to what she was telling me, I was going to burn in hell. And I was very upset by that. And I said, how did she get in here? And she said, what are you talking about, Rick? She works here. And so, so then I found out that this weird, bizarre group that yeah. targets Jewish people uh, that was uh, so-called uh, the Jewish Voice Broadcast, it was called, mm -hmm. that they had infiltrated the paid professional staff, five of them, into this Jewish nursing home, and they covertly became employees of the home to target the elderly. And when I found that out, to be frank with you, I was pissed. So I went to the director of the uh, nursing home and we worked together. We found out who was involved with this. They were fired. And that led to a series of committee appointments and community activism and organizing. And, and, and it just kept going on until I was a staff person at one agency. Then I became a private consultant, expert witness, a lecturer, and it just went on and on and on. And uh, that began in 1982. In 82, you started doing this in 82. I mean, you know, yes. it, this is, and I grew up, and I remember growing up in that home where everything else was a cult. You know what I mean? Like you were, you were told this was a cult. That was a cult. We were told not to buy Procter and Gamble products when I was a kid because money went to the occult. <laughs> like yeah. that was, there was yeah. certain toothpaste we couldn't use because money went to, you know, people that didn't believe what we believed. Right. Which is, which is interesting because I have my stance, um, which is very anti-religion and I talk about it and I read about it and I, and I try to make myself aware but that's where I am because of, you know, the work that I put in to understand it, which is turned into a career for you. Right. This is yeah. this is what you, you you do for a living. But where are you at? Like, do you, as someone that researches this stuff, are you pro-religion? Do you subscribe to religion? Did, did a lot of this stuff? You don't have to share any of that stuff with us at all, um, because I find the more I find out, the less I subscribe to any belief uh, of deity whatsoever. Uh, well, I would describe myself as as a Jew. I was raised as a, a, a Jew. I belonged to the same synagogue for many years, uh, for decades. I served on the National Committee uh, for Interreligious Affairs and also a committee on cults for the Union uh, for Reform Judaism, which is the largest denomination of Jews in the United States, uh, often called the liberal Jews. Or, or as one rabbi told me, uh, we're kind of like Episcopalians, <laughs> but, uh, but, but uh, I, with all, you know, I would regard myself as a very tolerant uh, monotheist. I don't believe that my denomination has a, a lock on salvation. I believe that other groups you don't, are, are you don't, you don't believe that what you believe everyone has to believe or, or else. No. Every, and you're the only ones going, cause that was the evangelical Christianity part. I couldn't dig. It was like, yeah. we're all going to heaven. Everyone else is going to hell unless they say this magic prayer. And I'm like, that's impossible. That's not real. Yeah. You know, I always found that part of the message very appealing. That is the part that Jesus died for your sins and that no matter how wretched you are, no matter how bad things have been in your life, no matter what mistakes you've made, 
uh, and I used to work uh, for Jewish Family Service in the prison system uh, in a running a, a prisoner program in the 80s. And I would I would meet these uh, devout evangelicals, and they would talk to me about their their salvation experience. And some of them had committed very serious crimes. And I thought that was a beautiful thing. I mm-hmm. thought the idea that that Jesus died for your sins and that and that his sins washed your guilt away and that God loved you and all of that positive stuff I like. The part I didn't get was the hell hell part because my religion, Judaism, does not believe that there is a hell that people go to. Uh, perhaps- they tend to overplay the hell card in uh, in Christianity. Yeah. Like I remember whole sermons, like 30 minutes of a sermon where the guy described how painful hell was going to be. And you're like... I get it. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. I get it. Like you just get move off it. But it was like this, this, uh, and and they, they used like, they, they used to sell religion. Like it was fire insurance board, boarding and, you know, what's the worst that can happen if you just accept the Lord as your personal savior? Like what's the worst? It's like fire insurance. And that, 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 again, these are all little things where you're like, "Ah, I I can't get into that. It was a tough one. Yeah, look, it's like Jehovah's Witnesses, which I regard as a destructive authoritarian group, not a cult per se, because they're governed by a council or governing body of about 13 men. But at their early beginnings, under their founder, Charles Taze Russell, and then Judge Rutherford, his successor, they really were, in my opinion, a cult. Uh, run by one individual who was a sole dictator. And a lot of times I see them as selling insurance because they go door to door and they tell people, look, Armageddon is coming. It's coming soon. And everyone who's not a Jehovah's Witness, uh, who doesn't profess what we believe, will be murdered by Jehovah God. And then they may even show you pictures of Armageddon, you know, people falling into the earth. uh, All the pamphlets. Yeah, you know, and, and and it's like join now or else. Yeah, you're and, nuts. And, and you feel, you know, intimidated. But you know what I am really all about is look, if a group does not hurt people, if they do not do damage to people, to families, to individuals, then my attitude is believe whatever you want, whether it's uh uh you know, Zenu. Uh, which is the intergalactic overlord that plays a role in Scientology, or if you're just a Trekkie and you want to believe in Captain Kirk forever or whatever, mm-hmm. it's okay by me as long as you don't hurt people. It's when a group is organized and they s- systematically uh, they mandate uh, beliefs and practices that hurt people, for example, denying children medical tre- treatment, or, or denying a blood trans, transfusion, which Jehovah's Witnesses do, and many women that are Jehovah's Witnesses die in childbirth, or the horrible things that Keith Raniere did. Uh, he humiliated women, he subjugated women, he tortured women. And he, by the way, along the way, he also committed tax fraud and racketeering. But uh, when people do things that are criminal, they should be held accountable. And if a group leader, I don't care who he says he is or she, uh, when they say, look, you're persecuting me, uh, you're a religious bigot because you're criticizing me, because I'm using a religious belief system as my facade, and by the way, also gives me 501c3 tax-exempt status, 
thank you very much. And I'm collecting my money and doing my thing and I'm hurting people. And if you criticize me, you're persecuting me. I say, hell, that is completely uh, a fallacious argument. It's a false argument. And basically what you're telling me is because you claim to be religious or you have tax exempt status or whatever, that you're immune to the laws of our country. And I would say that is not the case. And you are subject to the laws just like everyone else. And if you cross the line, you deserve to be uh, a subject of investigation and you may be arrested. Interesting, because that transfers to the mask theory, too. A lot of people saying that they have a medical exemption or a religious freedom to not wear their, their masks right now. You know, well, same well, thing. Well, you know, look, I, I believe in the First Amendment. I believe in freedom of religion and freedom of speech. But if somebody stands up in a theater and yells fire, as they say, and people die in the stampede, you can be held accountable for what you say. Right. And, when, and when I see someone not wearing a mask, I say, what's the matter with you, dummy? Why don't you have a mask on? And if that person says to me, well, I don't have to wear a mask if I don't want to, I'm probably going to go to the store that I'm at and I'm going to say, look at that clown. He's not wearing a mask. Get him the heck out of this store. Mm-hmm. And and a number of people I've seen escorted out of out of a store. They do not have a right to infringe on me or other people in the store by spreading uh, the pandemic. They have a right to uh, stay at home. They have a right to not take the vaccine if they don't want to. I guess, uh, though, I would question uh, their intelligence if they if they refuse to take the vaccine. And of course, there are many anti-vaxxers now. But uh, (laughs) We have a lot of those up in Canada, and and I remind them all the time. I'm like, you know you wouldn't be here if you weren't vaccinated multiple times? You do know that you've been vaccinated since like hours after you were born, and it's continued because if you weren't, you wouldn't be here. And they're like, I wasn't there. I don't believe it. Yeah, well, all all my doctor has to tell me is, Rick, I've got a vaccine. I think you should take it. And I go, okay, what is it? Uh, It's shingles. You have to take two shots or three. I go, ready. You know, uh, you're. you're, you're, I get four? Right. Your your uh, your your typhoid shot is expired, and you're going to go overseas. Uh, ready? I've taken every shot my doctor recommends because. I've seen what happens when you don't, and it can be very painful. I recently went back and watched, I think, I don't know if the anniversary was recently, but the Waco, Texas, the shootout, and doing research on you, you were you were part of that in the sense, but I didn't realize that there was a cult aspect to it. Growing up, I just remember watching the news and the shooting and the late night cameras and the helicopters thinking, oh, these are just, this is just a gang or this is just a group of people that don't want to answer to authority, but I didn't realize that the Bruce Davidians and all this, like there's, that was an actual cult. And it's just fascinating that it came down to violence like it did. Sure. I worked as an analyst for CBS News during the Waco Davidian standoff. I was interviewed by both the, both the BATF and the FBI before and during the standoff. Uh, I advised the FBI at one point. Uh, they didn't always take my advice. In fact, they just kind of did their own thing. But Nevertheless, uh, I, I knew about the Davidians because I did an intervention to get a young man out of the Waco Davidians before the standoff. And then there was a young woman who was locked out of the compound during the standoff. And I did an intervention to help her move on with her life. 
so so I really was very familiar with the group, uh, probably for about five years before the BATF raided uh, the compound. I was shocked at the way they approached the compound because uh, I had acted as a liaison for them to talk to a young man that I deprogrammed who lived there for years. And he told them about all the weapons and the, right. the uh, ammunition stockpile and everything that was in there. And we were both shocked when we saw them just running into the compound on the roof, banging on the door. I mean, in my opinion, they would have been much better served had they uh, created a perimeter and then had the sheriff call in. Mm -hmm. And then and then during the standoff, some of the things they did were, were way over the top. For example, setting up uh, loudspeakers around the right. compound and then blasting them all night in, in the, with the idea that this was going to somehow uh, wear them out and they would come out uh, rather than hear the, the, the commotion every night. That, that didn't work at all. What it did was it made them tired and easier for David Koresh, their leader, to manipulate. And Koresh was, he was a psychopath. This was a guy who raped a 10-year-old girl uh, and that there were a number of minor children that bore him children. He was a, he was a pedophile. Uh, he was a child abuser and he broke the law. He was modifying semi-automatic weapons to fully automatic. He was, he was producing what's called grease guns. I mean, he definitely deserved to be arrested and prosecuted, uh, but the way that the BATF handled it, the way the FBI handled it was not very good. And I think they learned a lot from Waco. And then in subsequent standoffs that they've had, with extremist groups like the Freeman of Montana, for example, yep. they've, been, they've been much more careful and circumspect about the way that they approach the group. And, and I, I think in fairness to them, uh, they were on a learning curve and they had never dealt with a guy like David Koresh before. Mm -hmm. Did you see the uh, the documentary on Waco? I think it was like a three or four part documentary on Netflix. Uh, I think that's what I watched. Did you, you didn't see it? You, you no, well, watch I, I watched it. Well, you lived it, so I'm, I'm sure I, you didn't. That, that's the, the that's the David Thibodeau version of yeah. Waco. Well, uh, and and David Thibodeau only lived there a matter of months. Uh, he was a drummer in the band that keep, that uh, the David Koresh had, mm -hmm. and uh, he Great somehow he, somehow he got out. Uh, and he's been uh, living off of Waco for a long time. I mean, he sold the film rights. He had the book. He hit the lecture circuit. Uh, he did interviews for a price. Uh, I think his view of Waco is very weird. And in some ways, he, he, he criticizes Koresh. In other ways, he doesn't. Uh, but, but what I would say is that uh, series, I watched it. I, I really didn't feel that it was very uh, fact-driven. I think that it basically portrayed Korish in a rather soft focus light. Uh, he really was a pedophile. Yeah. And he preyed on children and he abused them. I mean, I met and spoke with a, a girl when she was 14 and she was raped by David Korish at the age of 10. Jeez. So, so I, I, you know, as you say, I lived it. There were years before the, the standoff that I dealt with the victims of David Koresh. There were women that had children with him that would call me and they would say, Rick, I, I, I want to leave, uh, but my kid is still in there. And I would later find out that that kid was David Koresh's son. 
and that they were trying to figure out how to get their kid out because David Koresh would never let any of his children out. Uh, during the standoff, he let 21 children out, but none of them were his children. The children that died in the fire were his children. And, and just, so, just so you understand what a, what a horrible person he right. was, there was a bus that was buried underground. And it was determined that if he had put the children in this underground shelter, they would have survived. Instead, he put them in harm's way where he knew they would die. Uh, he was a, a just he was a psychopath. And yeah. like, like Jim Jones, when he knew his time was up and he was going to have to go to prison, uh, he decided, look, I'm going to pull the plug and these people are mine and everyone's dying with me. And he ordered the fire to be set. Let's make no mistake about that, because the forensic evidence is conclusive. Uh, the infrared photography, the audio recordings from bugging devices where Davidians were talking about, you know, setting multiple ignition points, uh, which were recorded through infrared photography and then later found in, in the investigation by experts that were investigating the site. So he he really wanted to kill everyone, and that was the way they died at his behest, like other groups that I could name, you know, that the leader decided to end the group. He died, and he took everyone with him. Would that be like a Heaven's Gate as well? Which Yes. I, that HBO, or Dubat Backs, whoever put out this past year, a four-part history of that. And again, I grew up through it. The so going through high school and college, and I'm, I'm familiar with it. I knew all the spoofs that Sarah Live did, but I didn't really do a, a deep dive in like the history of it. And it was like watching it. I'm kind of like I, I can't think of the the man or woman who's, who fronted it, but there was almost like they lured you in with like this gentle, like this kind of like ba and pa feeling. But I didn't sense anything violent with them. There was just something over, overtly creepy with Haley's comment. And so when that guy decides to, okay, we're all going to drink this Kool-Aid, we're all going to do this, is that his way of using, ending it, but using Haley's comment as a means to, we're doing this because we're going to latch on to the back of this comment? Or do you want to end that cult right then and there? Well, it, you know, it boils down to the same formula. You have all these people that are totally dependent on one individual to tell them what to do. And that is a direct result of that individual leader's manipulation and planned gaslighting of, of the people so that he or she can take over the decision-making for them. And you have all these people dependent on that leader. And if the leader is psychologically unstable, if the leader is a sociopath, a psychopath, a paranoid uh, individual that's delusional, as many of these cult leaders that you're talking about are, that lead cults that end so tragically, like Marshall Applewhite, who led Heaven's Gate, who was uh, linked to this woman, Bonnie Nettles, who he actually met at a psychiatric hospital. Nettles was a nurse. And when she died, a lot of him kind of died. And he was in his 60s. He felt like, you know, I don't, I don't want to live anymore. And so that's my theory. Right. And he, he then took the group with him. Now, these people lived in total isolation. Uh, they were doing a web design work back, back in uh, the 90s when you could make some money doing that and everything wasn't offshore. And so they had like a living room and a big, big uh, McMansion in Southern California that they would sit there 
and you know work from their uh, computer stations. And Apple White would collect all the money and he would manage everything, control everything. They weren't allowed out of the house without an escort. They weren't allowed to communicate with their families with the exception of one member of Heaven's Gate whose sister was the woman who played Uhura on Star Trek. I can't recall, yes. her, yep. can't recall her name. Her and brother, by, right? uh, that was her brother who died in Heaven's Gate. And, and by the way, Heaven's Gate was based in part on Star Trek because Applewhite said, oh, Jesus was part of the away team. I'm Jesus now, come back to save everybody. I am your teacher. You are my students, you are my class, and you are linked to me in order to rise to the level above human. And that's how he rationalized the suicide. You're not really dying, you're transforming. You're shedding your human container. Imagine that he relegated wow. human life to a container and he dismissed it and he gave them instructions to take a concoction of a phenobarbital uh, pudding and vodka. And then routinely these people, there were 39 bodies found, they would put a, 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 like a dry cleaning bag over their head and, and tie it off and they would suffocate in their sleep. It was a somewhat humane way to go as opposed to cyanide or fire as other groups that we've mentioned. Right. Uh, but, but it was all about Applewhite. He decided what shoes they wore. They all wore Nikes. Uh, he decided what color their shrouds would be. They were purple. He even decided every item on the last meal that they ate. Yep together at some Marie Callender's restaurant in California. So, so what you see in a lot of these groups that they all die, uh, though there are, there are variations, nuances. I mean, not everybody at Jonestown wanted to drink the Kool-Aid. A lot of people were murdered. All of the children were murdered. There were over 200 children out of the 900 people that died that were murdered by Jim Jones. And people that tried to run away were shot. Right. So, so, the, but in the case of Heaven's Gate, it's eerie. I mean, they all cooperated. They all followed Marshall Applewhite's edicts, and they all died with him. Which you mentioned earlier. That was, well, I guess why I asked the question is you mentioned that if they're not doing anything violent or anything bad, they just believe that. What's wrong with it? But it, it got so far that they just committed suicide. So. It's just very fascinating to me that they're the, like the that's the one cult I can actually kind of look at and be like they didn't really do anything that didn't bother me if I if they if I was their neighbor I don't care what they're doing as long as they're not shoot people kill a drug and rape no. whatever but it, they all killed themselves it's just it's just mind blowing I, I I don't understand it so well, I I have a question too uh, from that perspective does you've got um you've got leaders that are in the case of um, of of Jonestown and in the case of Applewhite that die with their flock, right? And I know that they're dead, so you can't ask them the question. But for most of those guys that get to that point, is that about them? Do they really believe that too? Or is the gig up for them too? Like is that is that a is that a martyr's death? Like everyone else thinks it is. That's doing it with them. Uh, the thirty nine people with Heaven's Gate were they were they like yeah this is a great idea because because it, to me 
and and I know he's got these other people believing it, but to me, the individuals that ordered it, if they valued themselves as they've told people they were valued, you know, they would know what they're doing is killing a whole bunch of people. They would, you know, it, does that make any sense? Because, or do they believe it? Like, yeah, we're all, I'm going to heaven with these guys too. Or because the gig's got to be up at that point. Like, well, I think, Dean, if they believe it, that's when they become really dangerous. I mean, when they buy into their own hype, their own delusion, and they're no longer grounded in reality, they go over the edge. Because and a lot of those guys, they start, I'm sure they started, it's like a pyramid marketing scheme, and all of a sudden right. the money starts to come in, and they get control, and they, yeah, they yeah, move I to different towns. People are trying to get out. Right, right. right. And, then, and then it's like, okay, like I'm pot committed here. I guess I got to drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> You know what I well, mean? Well, Dean, I think it varies from leader to leader. In the case of Jim Jones, I think it was a, a kind of narcissistic rage. A congressman came to the compound in Guyana in 1978 uh, to investigate what was happening to these people from his district in California. He had had complaints from families, etc., and Jim Jones agreed to let him in. And Jim Jones was very angry that he had to do that. He was angry at the families that, that complained about him. And that's why he isolated his remaining followers in Guyana in South America, in the middle of the jungle, where he could control their world and keep them from reading the newspaper or listening to the radio or watching news reports on television. And when Ryan came there, he thought he could pull the wool over his eyes. It didn't work. Uh, people said, please, they slipped notes to Leo J. Ryan saying, please take me with you. I need to get out of here. Yeah. And when Ryan took some of them with him to return to California, Jones, you know, he, he went off the deep end. And he, he, well, he sent out his security people to shoot and kill a congressman and as many of his party as they could get. And they almost annihilated every one of them. And at that point, Jones, I think, was uh, coherent enough, cognizant enough to realize it's over. The law enforcement is going to come and get me. I am not going to get away with killing a United States congressman and murdering his on his 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 entourage. So, the, in fact, law enforcement was on its way, and then he pulled the plug. I think that he didn't feel that this was really something cosmic or something religious. I think, in in my opinion, that Jones wanted to get even with the world. He wanted to particularly get even with the families that had complained that had loved ones in the compound. And I think his his thought towards the end may have been, you wanted to find out about your kid? You wanted to find out about your family member? Well, guess what? You can claim their body because they were mine, not yours, mine, and they will die with me. Now, I think in the case of David Koresh, I think he became delusional at the end in large part. Uh, I also think Marshall Applewhite, who spent quite a few times in psychiatric hospitals, he would actually sign himself in because he was disturbed, though at one time he was a college professor. I think he had a PhD. He taught music, but he left under a cloud regarding some kind of sexual affair with a student. Uh, and he struggled with his sexuality. He was apparently gay, and he at one point had himself castrated and encouraged other males in the group to also be castrated, which some of them did. So Applewhite was also, I think, delusional, a deeply troubled, unbalanced person. 
Just a quick postscript there too. If you're, you know, if that's demanded in your cult and your new cult, that's a good red flag, right? Yeah. If you know? your leader, if your leader says cut it off, I think you should say, right. wait a minute. <laughs> hang on. Wait a minute. Hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait I'm good with giving you 10% everything I got. But hang on. And and let me let me point out though that Keith Raniere and Charlie Manson. In, in my mind, are two people that were not delusional, were very cold, calculating psychopaths who recognized that what they were doing was deceiving people, manipulating mm -hmm. people. They were running a con. And as a psychologist, Margaret Singer, who was a cult expert, said to me once, she said, Rick, you know, a cult leader is just like a con man. The only difference is a con man takes the money and runs. And the cult leader stays and runs the same con on the same people indefinitely. Mm. And in my mind, Keith Raniere and Charlie Manson, two peas in a pod, both malignant narcissists, both psychopaths, and both playing their people like puppets. Uh, and what Manson did, and I think this is where uh, Keith Raniere was headed, they, Manson weaponized his, his women. He weaponized his followers and he was convicted of murder, even though he did not actually commit the crime. He was convicted because he used his followers like a lethal weapon and he wielded them to kill people that he held in contempt. He was angry because he wasn't a music star. He wasn't a rock star. Hollywood didn't want him. And uh, he was rejected over and over again. And as a result, he was bitter. He was angry. And in my opinion, he lashed out at society by terrorizing Los Angeles. Huge uh, themes. Huge yeah. themes. Rejected. Reject rejection is a huge theme among a lot of these guys. Yeah. No, Charlie Manson grew up in institutions. Uh, he He basically started as a juvenile. And before he started the cult, he was in prison. And he had, he had run games in prison. He was a con man. And so then he came out, he found these young people that were very naive, very malleable, very suggestible. He used drugs, isolation, he gaslighted them, he manipulated them, and eventually he weaponized them. I think Keith Raniere was getting very close. He was encouraging the women to have weapons. Uh, there were women that were with him in Puerto Vallarta when he was arrested, and they had weapons. And I think, and, and I'll tell you, I was one of his targets for years. I mean, he sued me for 14 years, and he had <laughs> private investigators go into my bank account, my phone records. He even bought my garbage through them. So you yeah, actually man. lived through a cult. It, I, this is, like, you were targeted? Yes. tried to yes. absorb you. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was targeted by Ranieri, which came out in court court proceedings. Yeah. And then I also have been targeted by Scientology. I've been sued by a number of cults, but Ranieri actually spent estimated $5 million of the Bronfman's money suing me over a period of 14 years. He also hired a private investigation company in New York called Interfor, uh, headed by Yaval Aviv to yeah. go into my private life, to go into my phone records and my bank records illegally, and to buy my garbage, which I guess is technically legal. If I throw it away, you can buy it, I guess. How much? Do you know, uh, did you find out how much your garbage went for? Uh, all I know is that uh, Yuval Aviv and Interfor got hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for, your for, garbage. for, 
for putting me under surveillance. Oh my Dean, god! Dean, your garbage, Dean, before you put out the No, I'm. I just imagine the stress. Like I imagine the stress of some guy snooping through your shit and and looking at your bank accounts and you finding out. Did you know this whole time, or did you find out after? No, I didn't know, and I found out when an attorney that was working for Ranieri. Uh, he he decided to leave the group because of some of the criminal things that were going on. He became afraid. Uh, his name is Joseph O'Hara. And he, he contacted a, a journalist in New York, and he shared with him some of the confidential file that Ranieri was assembling, the dossier that he was assembling uh, about me through Interfor. And this a journalist called me up on the phone, and he said, uh, he said Rick, uh, I have your bank records. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, I have your bank records and uh, I'm, I'm looking at them right now. And I said, that's impossible. They're here in my office. They're locked in a filing cabinet. I, I never threw them away. <clears throat> and so he said, well, let me just start going through a statement. And I, I pulled out the statement that he named and he was telling me everything on my statement wow. to, the, to the penny. And I, I, I realized, oh, my God, they have my bank records. And to this day, I don't know exactly how they got them, but they did. And uh, they also got my phone records. And uh, the, the phone bills were also never thrown in the trash. So they were also under lock and key. So how, how that was done, uh, only Yavala Viv and his operatives at Interfor know. But uh, I sued Interfor. And they settled with me out of court, uh, though the lawsuit that I filed also included Nexium. And when the Nexium lawsuit against me was dismissed, uh, the judge, who I think was totally fed up with the whole thing, said, I'm going to dismiss uh, Mr. Ross's lawsuit as well. And so that was the end of that. Wow. But, uh, but you know, I've been harassed, threatened under federal protection, uh, Homeland Security protection, FBI protection. The Justice Department has sent me reminders about right. one group that had me on a hit list. So <clears throat> I've I've run the gamut. You know, you if you if you want to take on dark, sinister groups like some of the cults that I've dealt with over the years, uh, this is what happens. How awesome are your vacations? Very awesome. <laughs> Very awesome. Like I, 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 that, that, that kind of job, you would need three to six months off a year to decompress. Like, well, all, all I can say is to your your listeners, uh, Guadalajara. What a wonderful place to go on vacation. Talaki Paki? Have you been to Talaki uh, oh, Guadalajara? Many, many times. I love them. One of the coolest markets you'll ever see in your life. Oh, yeah. And the, and the margaritas are fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, so if you're, if you're being harassed by a cult, go to Guadalajara, kick back in Tlaquepaque, yeah. have a nice margarita and let your mind float a little bit. I, I think, I think you have to decompress if you have a stressful job. Yeah. And it's a job that I don't think, I'm fortunate someone like you can do this job because I, I'm still kind of blown away by the Nexium stuff, but I mean, that may be a part two, but before I let you gentlemen go, Dean, I know obviously the Deep Bledel Network and everything going on with the podcast, yep. but what kind of stuff do you have going on right now? It's anything coming up that, uh, yeah, uh, coming up uh, next, we're gonna have Rick on the show. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't get enough of him. I'm like, I, I want to ask this guy about 15,000 other questions just because it's uh, it's fascinating. You know, th this is the kind of job that 
you know, you, you hear that people do in the darker corners of the universe and he's still got a really decent head of hair and he's got a smile on his face and he, he's got some work going on outside. So, you know, nice renovation makes everybody feel good. I just, I, I think that this kind of, you know, specifically now with the, the time that we're in and, and, uh, and a very confused people defining what is good for you and what is bad for you. And I found it very interesting how you said, especially when it comes to groups that you join, people that you want to be with, people that you want to share bread with or, you know, internet groups or chat sites and stuff like that. You know, someone needs to be out there telling people that there are groups like this ready to take advantage of you because you feel bad. And, wow. and, and that, that's a tough one for people. You know, I've got family that are involved in some of this stuff. I, you know, my, my family's still involved in organized religion, which is fine. Um, I've got a pretty harsh view of any, any organized and you said it so great earlier in the in the podcast. Yeah. Any organized group that generally tells you to hurt people or hurt yourself is probably a cult. Like it's it's really that simple, you know. And 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 um, you can get into all kinds of definitions of you know democracy and having a board of directors as opposed to just being one, about one guy. But I learned a ton today, so I just wanted to thank Rick and and hopefully have him on our show, you know, down the road. Awesome. Well, Rick, what else do you have going on right now? I know you have your social media, your website. Uh, anything else going on right now in your world? Yeah, well, I started the Cult Education Institute, which is a very large database in 1996. And if people go there at culteducation.com, you will see one of the largest archives online. It's an online library with information about all the groups that we've talked about. There's a section on Heaven's Gate, a huge archive about Scientology, another one about the Waco Davidians. Uh, so it's all there and many groups that you haven't heard of that you might be interested in. In addition to that, uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm also, uh, the Cult Education Institute is on Facebook. And so if people are interested, they can follow me on Twitter. They can follow me on Facebook. They can uh, go to the website, culteducation.com and, and catch up on the news about cults there. Uh, and my book, uh, which I, you know, I recommend is a compendium of information about cults, about how people get in, how they get out, the modern history of cults today, uh, and, and how people are recovering after they leave. The name of the book is Cults Inside Out, how people get in and can get out. And I think it's a good read. I think people awesome. will, uh, will enjoy it. Awesome. Well, thank you both, gentlemen, and uh, be safe, and we will uh, do this again, part two. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Nice to be on. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Hi, I'm Connie. 
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.